Anyway, so we're in Deuteronomy. We're back in Deuteronomy. If you haven't been here, we've been, we just started recently uh, walking through the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and, uh, and we've looked through the first two chapters. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. Uh, and just to give you a very quick, just big picture to remember what we're doing here, because it's easy to get down into the weeds, start talking about giants, and you're like, whoa, and take off into a tangent, you know. But let's, let's figure out what we're doing and uh, what the purpose is. So Deuteronomy is expositions of Moses. He's teaching the second generation of Israelites uh, to, uh, uh, basically what God said. He, they're, 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 it's a covenant renewal. They're, they are going to commit to be the people of God and to go and take the land. This all comes after the first generation of Israelites, their parents that came out of Egypt that were 20 years old and older, have, have been wiped out in the desert uh, because of their lack of trust in the Lord, their fear of not going in and taking their land, their refusal to do it uh, at Kadesh Barnea. And so for the last 40 years, they've been wandering the desert uh, until the first generation passes. And then, uh, and then Deuteronomy basically begins, this, the, the first generation is gone, the second generation is there on the plains of Moab at the end of Numbers. And, uh, and, and Moses is preparing them to go in and to obey the Lord and to take the land. They've already fought two battles on the east side of the Jordan with Sion, king of the um, two Amorite kings, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, which is we're going to talk about him today. Um, but, uh, like I said, this is the first four chapters is really almost like a historical overview. And again, it's intended for this, the children of the first generation to be reminded of both the faithfulness of God, his word, his promises, his covenant to Abraham, what he's called them to be. Uh, it's a reminder of the lack of faithfulness of their parents and what happened to them and the consequences of that. And then to trust the Lord and not in themselves, to trust in the Lord, not in their own strength, not in their own understanding, but to listen to what he says because he says, I'm giving this to you. This is something that I foreordained, I promised to your forefathers, I'm giving to you both out of a punishment of the people of the land for their sin and out of a blessing giving them the land that he promised Abraham. Uh, and their job is to be faithful, to trust him, and to do exactly what he says. That's what, the, like I said, the kind of the big picture is. So that being said, in chapter 1, we looked at, it was really the historical account of them getting from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, to Barnea, which is like the, the southern part of the land of Canaan, uh, where they sent out the 12 spies, and, uh, and then the 12 spies went out, came back, bought a, brought a, a good report of the land, but a bad report of their ability to take the land, and it disheartened the people. They turned away from the Lord, and the Lord said, well, now you will wander in the desert until this generation dies because you didn't trust me, and the second generation will come in. The first thing they did after that is not trust the Lord again and go try to take the land on their own, and that wiped out a lot of them right out the gate. Uh, and then they began the wandering. Uh, verse or chapter two begins the the basically the end of the forty year wandering, and uh, the the Israelites that are left leaving Kadesh Barnea and traveling down around Edom up to uh, the plains of Moab. And he begins to recount some of these things. And we talked about this in depth last week. Um, and really, it's when they cross. The, so actually, I, I, this is the map I forgot to show you last week. Now, again, there's many maps. But this is one that seems to me to be the, the, the most correct based on what the Bible says. It looks like they leave Kadesh Barnea, which is over here. And they, they got to head to Mount Hor because that's where Aaron dies. And that's over this way. And then they, they, they go around the land of Edom. So I think this, and they do go down the, the way of the Arabah this way. So they, and they, they make it down to the Red Sea. So I believe that this is a good way to kind of picture it. This is where 
They were supposed to go in the first time, but they didn't trust the Lord. The 12 spies went out. They wandered the desert. We don't know where. I mean, the Bible doesn't show us where they wandered for 40 years. Uh, But at the very end of the 40 years, we know that they come down through Mount Hor, down here, and they circumvent Edom until the Lord says, you can go through Edom, and then they end up up here at the plains of Moab. Now, there's other things that happen along the way. That's just kind of like the short version of it. And then when they'll leave the plains of Moab to go over and conquer Jericho. Now, but like I said, once they get up into Moab and Ammon, there's two battles that happen there. And that's really the focus of chapters 2 and 3. And so that's where we get more detail. But this is, oh, and this is like a map that tells you the, the modern day places and kind of gives you a, a picture of, of where they would have been. And that's kind of neat. Um, one of the things we talked about last week that's just a good thing to remember when they cross the brook Zered, we know this from Deuteronomy 2.14, that's, that's really kind of the end of the first generation and the beginning of the conquest of the second generation. Because in Deuteronomy 2.14, it says, Now at the time that it took us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. So... Um, basically, the crossing of the brook Zered had marked the end of the rebellious generation. And then when they crossed the Arnon River, which is at the top of Moab, and we, again, here's kind of a map. Uh, Zered is down here uh, after they come around Edom, and that's where they, it's kind of a, a marker. At that point, it's almost like it's time to begin the conquest of the land and the beginning of the faithfulness of the second generation. The first generation is gone. And so the Arnon River is here. So Zared, we talked about that. The Arnon River is here. The uh, Jabuk River is up here. And so these are kind of, and, and these are just natural geographical um, borders because there's, there's big valleys where these rivers run through. So again, when we talk about these things, for us, it's all foreign. We're like, you know, just river to river to river. But it'd be like, they cross the Mississippi, and then they cross the Rockies, and then they cross, you know what I mean? There's like markers in the United States that are like, those are kind of uh, division points. And so, uh, and so anyway, the brook Zared was at the top of Edom, the bottom of the land of Moab, the, the, uh, the wadi or the gorge of the Arnon River uh, marked a natural border between the land of Moab and the land of Ammon. And then we talked about the the, um, the uh, Amorites, uh, that, which were um, a, a group of people that came and took part of the land of Ammon here, and they were led by this king, Sion. And then Amorites took the land up here, and it was led by uh, a king called Og. And so the Israelites were told, do not touch Edom. Those are brethren of, of Israel. Do not touch Moab. God gave them that land, and those were the descendants of Lot. Don't touch Ammon. Those were descendants of Lot. And again, all this is part of their faithfulness. They did what the Lord said. They took the land the Lord told them. They fought the people that God said he would give into their hands, but he also told them, don't touch Ammon, don't touch Moab. And they actually, they obeyed him there as well. But anyway, all that being said, they cross Zared, and then they, they just go through Moab. They cross the valley of the Arnon. And I was trying to show you some pictures. It kind of gives you a picture, at least of today, what the train looks like. And you see how that would create a good border for the next nation. And so they cross the valley of the Arnon. That's just the river that's kind of running down in that gorge. Um, and then they, uh, um, they've crossed the Arnon River right there. And now they're up in uh, Heshbon, which is this area up in this pink. And the king of Heshbon is Sion, and he is an Amorite king. And so last week, uh, we talked about that. He fought, uh, they fought Sion. They des- destroyed Sion and took all the cities, killed all of the people of that land, now, again, these people are, all the people of this, this land and the people in Canaan 
uh, not all of them, but there's many people in this land that are big people, you know, and today we're going to meet another one of them uh, named Og, and it actually gives the size of his bed or his coffin is huge. Um, but uh, whether it's Egyptian writings, Ugaric, I don't know how you say it, Ugaritic, I, I can't remember, but there's, there's, there's texts outside of just biblical writings that talk about the people of Canaan during this time of being very big people, fearsome people, people that the Egyptians uh, were afraid of and things like that. So when the spies go out and they see people that look like giants, I mean, they're literally very large people. Um, some of them we have sizes uh, uh, given in the Bible, uh, even the Goliath and the, his brothers in Gath that were all really tall. I mean, Goliath is, it, it talks about him being six cubits tall, which is about nine and a half feet tall. Uh, the people from Gath, that's, those are the Anakim that after Joshua, I'm sorry, after um, yeah, Joshua came through and they, they wiped out the Canaanites, some of the Anakim ended up going over, or maybe the Malachites, I can't remember, uh, to the land of Philistia, and that's where probably the giants from Gath came from. Uh, the, but if you look in the Bible, uh, many of these people, if you look at Genesis 14 with Kedolamir, and you look here in Deuteronomy 2, when we talk about the Amim, the Zuzim, um, the... Uh, the Amalekites, the Horites, uh, the uh, Amorites, and there's probably another rites. These are all big people. And these are people that, uh, that the little people like us are afraid of. And we go out and fight them and kill them because we don't want them around us and come and attack us and, and destroy us. And so that's really what's going on here. When Israel is taking this land, there are literally big people in the land. That being said, it's fun to talk about. It's fun to, to read about. Uh, but I don't want to take a tangent because I feel like uh, as much as it is important and you need to know that, 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 that these are a fierce group of people and Israel was facing some, I mean, this is why their reputation would be, I mean, they, the fact that they beat Sion and they're going to go beat Og and take these lands back from the Amorites is not a small task uh, because this would be, I mean, again, this, this people group that just kind of migrated out of Egypt and they're attacking some of the strongholds of this land and just taking it with ease. Um, that, that would be a big deal. That's why the people of Jericho's hearts hear that the, here, here comes Israel. Um, so all that being said, though, all of their victories and their abilities to fight these people are completely dependent on their submission and obedience to God. It's God handing them over to the Israelites. It's not that they were that Israel was a fierce group of people. Um, so again, the big picture thing is we're looking at the faithfulness of the second generation because the first generation is an example of unfaithfulness to us, and they're used as a warning in the New Testament for us to look at the example of Israel. Even how Shane was talking in there, they've, they've been removed from the vine. We've been grafted in. But the warning is you in the same way. If you, if you uh, um, tread on his grace or if you continue in wickedness, you can be removed just as easily. It doesn't mean you can lose your salvation, but it's, it's a warning from Scripture. Don't play with sin. Don't, don't toy around with holiness and the things of God. We submit to him. We follow him. We trust him. We strive to be faithful to him. That's the, the message from the first generation. The second generation is, that's a good example. Trust him. Do exactly what he says. No more, no less. He always takes care of us. He always delivers us. Um, and so anyway, I don't want to get down into the trenches of giants because I think it can detract from the big picture of what we're trying to do here in Deuteronomy. Um, and it can attract just endless speculation which is fun in its place, but not in here. In here, let's keep moving through Deuteronomy. But if you want to know more about giants, I found two good resources there on the back table. You can read those. And since I brought it up two weeks ago, 
I've probably had 12 people seriously talk to me about giants and all their opinions about giants. And I've learned about a dissertation on giants that I want to go read and all that. So there's stuff out there. But don't get so caught up into that that you miss the big picture. You know what I mean? And that's what we're going to do today. So Deuteronomy 3. Uh, This is kind of the outline of what we're going to look at today uh, in Deuteronomy 3. Uh, Now that Sion is gone, they're going to move and they're going to uh, fight Og, king of the Amorite. Uh, the Amorite king in Bashan, which is the next territory up, uh, they're going to take the land of all the Amorites east of the Jordan, uh, and then they're going to divide the land of, now it's Israel's land east of the Jordan. After that, there's going to be a command to Joshua uh, through Moses and the Lord to go and do the same thing on the other side of the Jordan River, all the land that the Lord is giving them. And there's a final plea of Moses at the very end. Can I please go in? And God's like... Stop talking to me about it. All right. So here's where, here's, here's where we're going to start. Defeating Og, the Amorite king, Sean, uh, Deuteronomy 3, 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, read uh, with me because it's good to see it in your Bibles and you can make your markings and things like that if you want. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, I do have it up here and I'll point out some of the things I think are important to, to keep in mind. So let's read it first. Deuteronomy 3, 1 through 7 says, Then we, Israel, turned and we went up the road to Bashan and Og... King of Bashan, with all of his people, came out to meet us in battle at Edrei. I'm I'm horrible with place names, by the way, so don't worry about it. (laughs) Uh, But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hands. So into your hands. So this is the Lord's doing. And you shall do to him just as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord said, I just, you just watched it. I handed you a whole kingdom. Just do the same thing again. I will take care of it. I'm handing them into your hands. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all of his people into our hand. And we smote them until no survivor was left. Again, not knowing everything, it just seems like, you know, it was a minor battle. One little verse and battle's over. Uh, It says, we captured all of his cities at that time. There was not a city we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, uh, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many of unwalled towns. So it's not, these aren't insignificant cities uh, that they're taking. We utterly destroyed them, <clears throat> as we did to Sion, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the animals and the spoil of the cities uh, we took as our booty. So, again, just kind of giving you a map and helping you to, to visualize it as we talk about it. Uh, we passed through uh, around and then through the, the corner of Edom. We went through Moab. We've defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, in the former land of, of Moab, Ammon. And now we're up here at the purple top, up top. Uh, the river Jabbok is at the bottom. And Mount Hermon kind of uh, is the top of this kingdom. So I'll zoom in on this as we kind of talk about it. The first thing to point out is Bashan is the northernmost district of the Transjordan, east of the Jordan. So this is, this is north, uh, and, and again, you can see it there, before you get into Syria. And this is the end of the conquest east of the Jordan. This is the end of the land the Lord has given them. Um, Transjordan just means across the Jordan. And this conquest takes Israel uh, far north from the place that they're going to cross. Again, they're going to go take all of this land, and then they're going to return all the way back down here before they cross over to Jericho. So there is a reason. We're not given a reason why other than the Lord has given them this land and they need to go take it. Um, you know, people speculate, well, that would help them not get flanked by another army coming in after they defeated um, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Sion down here in Heshbon and all that, and that, that could all be true. Uh, but again, it really boils down to the Lord said, I'm giving you this land. 
These cities will belong to you. Go and take them. And this is still part of the faithfulness of Israel. They could have said, we're right here. <laughs> Why don't we just go over and take the other land? You know, But the Lord said, I'm giving you his land. And they go and they take it. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, looking at pictures of all this really helps. Again, this is, this is what I do. This helps me so much when I'm reading these place names because they're foreign to us. We don't live there. We don't know these places. And, but when you kind of start seeing it, it makes things make a lot of sense. And so they're up in Bashan. Bashan is known uh, for its, its, it's a high plateau. It's known for its cattle, for its oak tree. It's a very lush place. Um, there's a lot of rain. It's a wonderful place. It's a very fertile uh, uh, plateau. Um, and they're taking the road to Bashan, which is basically a road, a main highway that would have actually run from the place where the battle uh, down here in Heshbon straight up to uh, Edrai here. And so there was a main road that went up that way. Israel would have just followed the main road up to that area. Um, and they would have uh, marched. It's about a 55-mile march uh, through Gilead uh, to reach the uh, army of Og, which is in this place, uh, Edrai. Uh, Edrai was a, a city, uh, a main city, possibly the capital city of Bashan, uh, on the Yarmuk River. And again, when you understand how these rivers work, they're running through these, these valleys, these wadis, these gorges, you know, and so they become places of, of uh, that, you know, you can, you can have protection because of the valley. Uh, there's cities built around the rivers, and so that's where they're going to be meeting. Not, not this exact location, but on the Yarmuk River at the, uh, the city of Edrai. Here's a, another place of the Yarmuk, not down in, in the gorge. So they're not big rivers, when we talk about rivers, but you're out in the middle of the desert, and so, again, these are important uh, rivers, important places. And so, uh, they, they meet him there. Uh, again, this, this place, actually, uh, Edrai, is mentioned in Egyptian hieroglyphic tablets as, uh, tablets as well. It's kind of neat. So, this was a known city in the day, and the Yarmak River forms a natural border between the plains of the north uh, and, uh, the, uh, and the Gilead Mountains to the south, which we'll talk about in a second. And so he tells them to do to Og just like you did to Sion. Now, the Israelites just saw proof of God's deliverance with Sion. They saw what God does when they just trust him and obey him. Uh, and again, they took a, a huge chunk of land, all these There's no way they could have done this on their own. Um, and it's not a minor endeavor for the Israelites, but it's very simple to God. If God's like, I'm giving this to you, then he will. And again, it's, you have to trust him. And so they had just done this with Sion, and they do the same thing with Og. It says they go in, they kill every living Amorite there. They took all the cities, 60 cities, which means, I don't know if that was 60 battles or if some of these cities got together. We know when they took the land of Canaan that we have a narrative of some of these kings getting together to, to form a group of of, of uh, Cities, or or, because they're not states, but a group of people to come out and to fight Israel. And so they took the north and the south very quickly uh, through these major battles, and then just went and had smaller battles with the with some of the other cities afterwards. So it could have happened like that. We're not given that in the narrative. It it, it's one verse in the narrative. They went up, they killed them all, and they took all the cities, and uh, and they defeated Og. Two verses if you talk about the cities. But they uh, so they have sixty settlements there in the northern Transjordan Valley. Um, and, uh, and again, you got the mountains up on the, the northeast side uh, with Mount Hermon being the tallest mountain. We'll talk about that in a second. But this would provide, the, the, they say it provides like a rain canopy because of these mountains. And that's what makes this plateau and this valley so fertile and so wonderful. Actually, if you read other places in scripture, uh, you can go read about the cows of Bashan, the bulls of Bashan. They were known as very strong and, and very um, uh, uh, highly sought after uh, 
for their, both their, their, their power and their meat. And then the oaks of Bashan, there were big oak trees. So again, this was a very fertile place. Uh, and these were uh, very important cities. And when it talks about the region of Argob, that's probably just the whole region of Og. But one of the things I want to point out here is in defeating the Og, king of the Amorites, the, the focus is on uh, their trust of the Lord and the Lord saying these things. That's the main point. That's what we want to pull away from this. Because, again, there's some really cool historical stuff. And, again, we could talk a lot about this whole area and all that. But the point is this, that God said, I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hands. So they belong to Israel. God is giving them to Israel. This is part of his promise. This is part of his will. Their job is to be faithful. And then later in verse 7, he says, The Lord our God delivered Og, king of Bashan, with all of his people into our hands. So all glory is given to him. They have a recognition that this was the Lord's doing, that this is both his foreordained will, and uh, it, and, and then he, he does it, but it's what they, uh, they have to trust him. On their side, again, is their faithfulness. They faithfully did what he said. And they, I mean, it doesn't say, well, I don't need to go into what it doesn't say. It does say, we smote them until no survivor was left. We captured all his cities. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Again, it wasn't half-hearted obedience. It wasn't like they took half of it and they were like, that's enough. It wasn't like they got afraid. They just did what he said. We utterly destroyed them as we did the Sion king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. And so, like I said, I just want to emphasize the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of the people, um, and they take the land. So, then there's a summary statement after that, verse 8 through 11. It's a summary of basically taking all the land east of the Jordan. And it says this. It says, thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two Amorite, or the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. So that's, that's the bottom, the southern border to the top of, of the land of, of Bashan or the, the land of Og. Uh, Sidonian, now this is cool, he takes, a, a, again, a, a, a historical um, uh, background here and just says the Sidonians call Hermon uh, Syrian and the Amorites call it Sinir. Hermon was a very... Uh, uh, Famous point, it's, it's like us being like, uh, uh, you know, Mount Everest, you know, everybody's heard of Mount Everest or Mount McKinley. It's just like that, that's one of the biggest ones. That's the one that stands out. It's a whole mountain range, but there's one that's, that's the biggest. And so Mount Hermon was that. All the cities of the plateau, they took all those in the plateau, all of Gilead and all of Bashan. Uh, Gilead is the hill country, Bashan is the plateau, the flatlands. As far as Salica and uh, Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And then another historical um, parenthesis, for only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Here we go again with the giants. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah, so this is speaking of saying, currently you can go see it. Uh, of the sons of Ammon, its length was nine cubits, its width was four cubits by the ordinary cubit. So, again, to kind of sum up, basically he's saying, we took all of the lands of Og and Sion east of the Jordan River that God gave to them. And so it's basically all of this, not counting Ammon's part. And then we don't know where Seleka is exactly, but most people believe that's the eastern border, and that's why he mentioned it there, because he's mentioning all these other borders. Uh, Mount Hermon is up top. And so these are two just different maps that kind of show you uh, the area here. Here's, here's Sion's kingdom. Here's Og's kingdom here. Uh, so it kind of shows you the, the different lands of the Amorites east of the Jordan. Um, and so, again, he's saying from the Valley of the Arnon, which is the southern border, all the way up to Mount Hermon. So, again, see, and it's like, oh, okay, so it's a whole mountain range where Mount Hermon is. 
In fact, uh, the Arnon River is the southern border. Mount Hermon would be the northern border of Og's kingdom. And Mount Hermon is the highest point in this. It's called the Anti-Lebanon Mountain Range. And so Mount Hermon is the highest point of that mountain range. Uh, and it's uh, basically it's a, a southwest-northeast mountain range that forms a border between Syria and Lebanon. The border is largely defined by this long crest of mountains. Um, and most of the mountain range lies in Syria. But that would have been a border from... Og's kingdom, on the other side of that is, is Syria. And Mount Hermon is the tallest of the peaks. That's a picture of Mount Hermon uh, looking at it. And to today, this is kind of just interesting, just as a side note, it's a big ski resort. So you can go to Mount Hermon. It's, it's still a very popular place to be, you know. So Mount Hermon has always been popular. It's always been uh, a landmark, and it's always been uh, a peak that people would use to say, you know, uh, in that time, they all had different names for it, uh, and it's mentioned in text outside the Bible. But again, it helps you kind of see it. So that's what they, they took. They took all of that land. When he talks about them um, taking all the cities on the plateau, uh, that's the land of Bashan that we talked about. So this is the plateau, a bunch of cities on the plateau um, uh, south of the, the, the mountains. But there was also on the West, going up, it was called the hill country of Gilead. Now, that comes up a lot in the Bible. There's, there's a lot of things that happen in Gilead. It's a pretty popular place, especially once Israel takes it. There's a lot of stories from Gilead, but it's good to also see it. It was a hill country, uh, basically, on the, the left or on the west, um, and, uh, and, and there was a deep ravine. Uh, with that river, the Yarmuk River that I showed you, that became uh, a border between the hill country of Gilead and the plains of Bashan. And basically, the Israelites took they, all of this now belongs to them. Uh, and, uh, and, and like I said, this is a, a kind of a picture of the kingdom of Og, the kingdom of, of, of uh, Sion, and, and uh, what the Israelites took. Now, the reason they have the... We'll talk about this. Actually, we'll get to that in a second. So there's a picture of all of the land they took. Like I said, uh, so they took both of these. They took all the, the kingdoms of both of these Amorite kings, which were fierce warriors, and, and, um, and they did it easily because they trusted the Lord. Real quick tangent, they talk about Og, and they talk about how big he is. So in verse 11, it says, For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold his bedstead. Now the word bedstead there, it could be his bed. Uh, it just means a resting place. It also could be his coffin, his sarcophagus. So whatever it was, he's laying in it. And it, in, it in some way, it, it gives you an indication this was a big dude. Uh, it says that he was, um, uh, what does it say? He was, it was nine cubits long. Its width was four cubits. An ordinary cubit is 18 inches, about 18 inches. A cubit goes from the elbow to the, the end of the middle finger. And an ordinary cubit was the standard, which would have been about 18 inches. In other words, his sarcophagus would have been 13 and a half feet by 6 feet. So that's a big one. Just to give you kind of a, a picture in your head, I don't have any pictures up here, but a normal coffin, like the, the, the standard size of a coffin for any of us, is 7 foot by 2 and a half feet. So it's basically double. So, I mean, it's double, double in length and almost triple in width. Of, so, again, it's not a tall, lanky dude. It's a tall, big dude. This is a big guy, whether that was his bed or whether that was his coffin, either way. Um, and it just kind of gives you, again, a glimpse into what the Bible says. They're, no matter what you believe about how big they are or where they went or where they came from and all of that, I think there's a consensus that there are giants in the Bible. They exist in this land. And... And there were some fierce people, and Israel took out a whole lot of them. 
They didn't finish. David will come through later and, and finish up the job. But Joshua wiped out most of them. But on this side of the Jordan, Moses and the people of Israel took out two Amorite kings. And this was a major thing. So again, we read it and we're just like, oh, they took two kingdoms. It's like this would be taking two powerhouses that, that the world was afraid of. And this was not a small feat. This was a miraculous work of God. All right, so the next part. So they've taken the land. It all belongs now to Israel because God has given it to them. And the next thing uh, that God calls them to do and the next thing they do is divide this land amongst a few of the tribes of Israel, two and a half tribes. Or, uh, yeah, two and a half tribes. So it says this in verse 12 through 17. Whoops. Um, they divide the kingdoms of Sion and Og between Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And this is a good uh, picture up here. I think this is, this is one of the ones that seem the most accurate based on what the, the text said. So it kind of gives you a glimpse of what they did. You got Moab here, Ammon here. We don't touch them. You start here with um, Sion's kingdom, and they divide Sion's kingdom basically between Reuben and Gad. There's a sliver here that I think actually makes sense if you read the biblical text, which you'll read in a second, that seems like they gave this also to Gad. And then Manasseh gets all of Og's kingdom. And so they get the half of the hill country of Gilead, all the plains of Bashan, all the way up to Mount Hermon. And then Reuben and Gad get the, the land of Sion and then half of the uh, part, of, part of Gilead on the, the uh, uh, Arabah side uh, next to the Jordan River. And all that's from the text. But again, seeing the map... Let's read the words, and then you can look at the map again. I divided the words up by what he gives to uh, Reuben and Gad first. So these are two of the tribes of Israel. And then we'll look at the verses for the Manassites. But he says, so we took, the possession, we took possession of the land at that time from uh, Arawer, which is by the Valley of the Arnon, which we've seen many times. It's a southern border. Uh, and half the hill country of Gilead, so they do get some of the hill country of Gilead, which was in Og's kingdom, and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. To the Reubenites and to the Gadites I gave from Gilead, even as far as the valley of Arnon, so that's staying the southern border again, all the way down, uh, the middle of the valley as a border, and as far as the river Jabbok, which is the, the northern border of Sion's kingdom, that's what divided Sion from Og, it says uh, the border of the sons of Ammon. The Arabah also with the Jordan as a border. So again, they're all the way over to the Jordan. And then it's like, well, how far north? It says from Chinnereth, which is the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee. So that's why I think there's that sliver that goes up. It's taking you up the Arabah, uh, the, the, the desert there that goes by the Jordan up to the Sea of Galilee, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, which is the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, uh, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, which we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, on the east. So again, that's neat. There's some geographical, very, very specific geographical borders to help you to go, I mean, you know, uh, you know exactly uh, what they're talking about. To give you a picture of some of this, so like I said, this is a map of it. Um, the, uh, the, the hills of Pisgah are going to come into play again in a second. Jericho's right here. This is where Israel camps out in the plains of Moab before they go over uh, into Jericho. And Pisgah is right there because that's where Moses is going to die. So that's a little, you know, uh, what is that, spoiler alert or something? But, uh, but, so he's, but he gives these specific places uh, from Chinnereth, the Jordan River, the Arabah. Uh, he gives the, the Jabbok and the Arnon all the way down to the Dead Sea. So like I said, this seems to me like a pretty good map. Uh, you'd be surprised. There's lots of maps out there. And some of them you're like, I don't know if they read it. Uh, the slopes of Pisgah 
are, uh, Pisgah just means summit. Uh, and so these are the, the, it just literally means summit. There's a, a mountain range called, there called the Abarim, which is a, a smaller mountain range. It's more like the Appalachian Mountains, you know. The Mount Hermons in the Rockies. Uh, Pisgah, Appalachians, you know, but they're still mountains. Um, and so they're, they're across the Jordan River. Uh, and Nebo is the highest, uh, the highest point on Pisgah, which it makes a lot of sense because that's actually the mountain. It is a mountain, but it's, you know, it's like a Georgia mountain, you know, the, when we came in from California, my wife is like, these are not mountains. Like, she's seeing the Appalachian Mountains. She's like, oh, those are some nice hills. You know what I mean? No, but they're mountains. They're mountains to us. And so, again, when you're, if you're up in Og's Kingdom, you would have seen Mount Hermon and, and the anti-Lebanon mountains, and you'd be like, those are mountains. Pisgah, that's just some hills. But they're called mountains. Mount Nebo is the highest point in Pisgah, and it looks kind of like that. That looks like an Appalachian mountain with no trees on it, right? So that's the mountain that Moses actually went up before he died. I'm just giving you a little bit of, this is, again, fascinating to me. Deuteronomy 3.27, at the very end of this chapter, he's going to tell Moses, go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west, the north, the south, the east, and see with your eyes, for you shall not cross over the Jordan. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses stalled for three sermons. He finally went up Pisgah, and then he died. So he knew when I go up this mountain, I'm going to die. So he, I'm just kidding. He he had to give these sermons. <laughs> but, but it's kind of cool. This is a picture that somebody put up there on top of Pisgah. And they actually have basically what you can see. But they, it's almost like Moses saw, you know. He would see the Dead Sea over there. Jericho would have been up in here somewhere. The Jordan River runs through there. There's no way he could have seen the Mediterranean Sea. Even on a clear day, they say it's 62 miles away. And there's, he wouldn't have been able to see it with his eyes. So, But we'll talk about that in a second. That's also kind of neat. But he sees all the land that the Lord is going to give to the Israelites, and then he dies. And actually, this is also where Moses, in the story of the bronze serpent, this, he was on Mount Nebo, put the bronze serpent up, they looked at the bronze serpent, and then they were healed from the bite of the, the, the asps that bit them and stuff. And so they had this sculpture that some person made and put up there. But again, it's just showing you that, that people read the Bible. They know where things happen. And it's just kind of, again, just when you see it, you're like, that's neat. It helps things make sense. So anyway... Uh, they uh, that's they give the the land of the um, of of Sion to the Gadites and Reubenites, and then for the Manassites they give the land of Og. He says the rest of Gilead, so the hill country, uh, not up to the Jordan River, and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. All the region of the Argob, which is probably just a way to describe the entire kingdom of of Og, concerning all Bashan, it is called the land of the Rephaim. Uh, Jair or Yair, like there's a, did you know there's a, a family, are, there, are they in here? We have a family in a church that named their daughter, I believe it is, daughter, Jair, but they say Yair, Yair, yeah, anyway, I just think that's cool, it's, it's not a common name <laughs> amongst us, but anyway, he's the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob, the reason I highlighted that is because that comes up over and over in the Bible, that's a uh, a, a, a important name. Also, his brother, Makir, if that's his brother, but they're, they're definitely family. He gives all of Gilead. But these are two Manassites. Uh, and if you go read in the, um, the narrative in, do, in Numbers, I didn't write it down. Uh, I can't remember. In Numbers 32, there's a detailed narrative of this event. They actually come and ask for the land. Um, and there's a conversation between them and Moses, and then he divides the land and gives it to half the tribe of Manasseh. 
Um, and uh, anyway, and, and if you keep reading, uh, th- these people were all given this lamb, but there was on one condition. They had to continue to fight with the rest of Israel. They had to fulfill the oath and fight with their, their brother. And they could leave their families and their livestock here in this land because it belonged to them now, but they had to cross the Jordan. They had to fight. They committed to do that, and they were faithful to do that to the very end. And then Joshua sends them back to their land in, in, in Joshua 22. He, I mean, he, there's a, literally a, a meeting, and he's like, you have fulfilled your vow. You have come over. You've helped take the land. So all that being said, that just kind of gives you a little bit of background. Uh, Manasseh gets the kingdom of Og, and like I said, Jair and, and Machir here, they come up over and over. Um, in Numbers, you see it. In, in First Kings, they pop up again. In fact, the judge, uh, you know, there's a judge named Jair or Yair, uh, and he comes from, actually, he comes from Machir's family, but from the hill country of Gilead, and he is a judge for 22 years uh, there in Gilead during the time of the judges, which is uh, it wouldn't be the same guy because that timeline wouldn't match up. Uh, but it also says he comes from the line of Makir. But it just helps you to kind of see things when you're reading the Bible and go, I know that name. I know where he's from. That makes sense. They gave the, the land to them, and it was named after them. So anyway, all that being said, they divide up the kingdoms of Sion and Og between Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And so the, the Manassites get that land and like I said, Jair and Makir, they, they, they take the hill country and the kingdom of, or the plains of Bashan. So the next thing is the command to take the land west of the Jordan. The job's not done. God's given them this land east of the Jordan, and now he's going to command them to, to hop over on the other side. Yeah. So the land on the east of the Jordan is also the promised land. Yeah. Well, God promised to give it to him, and he's given. In fact, again, if you look at the, the actual size of the promised land, it goes all the way up into Syria, all the way down to the river in Egypt. I mean, there, there's a promised land that, that we've never, Israel's never occupied. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, but, the, but he, he does give them this land east of the, the Jordan, and it is promised to them. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 or, I'm sorry, 3, 18 through 22. So after all this is done, the land is divided. It's like back to the conquest. And so uh, then it says, Moses said, I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. Now, again, the narrative of all this in Numbers, uh, it, there, there's, it's a bigger narrative. This is just a summary. Uh, and, and this is for, this is, they actually lived, the second generation lived this. You know, we're not talking about the history of their ancestors anymore or their, their parents. This is what you have done. He says, um, but your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord gives the rest of your fellow countrymen as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give to them beyond the Jordan. Um, so again, land, 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 land. Abrahamic covenant, God's going to give them land west of the Jordan. He says, once that is done, then you may return every man to his possession, which I've given you. I commanded Joshua at that time, because Joshua is going to be the one that leads them in to the land on the, uh, the west side of the Jordan. Moses is going to die. So this is the transfer of power from Moses to Joshua. He says, uh, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So you've witnessed the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's power. So he says, so the Lord shall do to the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. This is important. Do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. So that's the command. 
Now, again, they're all on the plains of Moab. They're about to do this. And Moses is reminding them of the faithfulness of the Lord, reminding them of the battles of Sion and Og, reminding them of what they've seen. And they're basically saying, take courage. He will always be faithful. You must be courageous and trust him and be faithful to do exactly what he's commanded you to do. And so, like I said, it's a reminding of the Lord's blessing. It's a reminding of the Lord's promise. It's a reminding of the Lord's covenant to Abraham and why he's doing what he's doing. It's a reminder of their responsibility. The rest, they, they needed to be faithful, join the rest of the tribes, and to go in and take the land. Um, and, uh, and so all of this is about their obedience and their submission. Again, as we study this historical book, that's the big thing we want to pull out of this is, well, what does this mean for us? And the thing is, is you must trust him. Trust exactly what he says. Obey exactly what he says. Even when there are circumstances that are beyond your control and seem too big or too impossible or too hard, if the Lord has commanded us to do something, he will be faithful to take care of us. Whether that's sharing the gospel, like we talked about at the beginning of this, whether that's leading your family and shepherding your children, whether that's loving your wife in the midst of hardship or even rebellion or whatever it may be, the Lord gives us the strength. We must be faithful. We can't look at something and be like, I just can't do that. That's impossible. We have to cling to him and we have to trust him. And so again, bringing it back to what they're facing, they're about to go in and do physical battle with people that are way too big and way too powerful for them. But he's saying, look at what he's already done. Trust him and go. Um, and so uh, you, you, uh, he basically tells him, you can leave your wives, you can leave your children, you can leave your livestock, um, but you must go over. I had a quote here. I thought I put it up there, but I didn't. Um, in Peter Craigie's commentary, he actually said, and this was a, a good point. He says, now the now deceased rebellious generation, the parents of this generation, they had used their children as an excuse for their disobedience. I don't know if you remember that, but that's what they were. They were afraid to go in and take the land at Kadesh Barnea because they're like, they're going to kill our children and they're going to, you know, and, and so they used their children as an excuse not to be faithful. This, this has direct application to us as parents. And, and, he, and he says, but now the new generation has obeyed the Lord and in their obedience, they've now, ha- uh, it, it means that they can now leave their families in the security of these newly acquired towns as they go take the rest of the land. I mean, think about that. Even the goodness of God, he didn't have to do that. But they took this land. He's now saying, leave your children and your wives and all your possessions here. Go finish the work I've called you to do. I'll keep them safe. Then you can come back and take them into the land. It's just, again, the goodness of God and, and how easy it is. Why am I crying? <laughs> how easy it is for us not to trust him, whether it's the shepherding of our children and our families. You know, we, we compromise when he talks about disciplining. We compromise when we... You know, when we, we talk about their soul or we, you know, we try to do things our way. And it's like we have to trust them. There's going to be all kinds of things in our lives that are unexpected, not wanted, hard to walk through. We have to trust them and stay faithful no matter what. And there are going to be times in all of our lives where that's going to seem impossible. But we have to. We have to trust them. And we have to remember the one that not only takes care of us here, but takes care of us eternally and just trust his will in the midst of all that. So I just thought that was a really good point, And I wanted to pull that out of there and make it a point for us to remember. Again, they have many cats. Even that. You can leave your cows here. I'll take care of them too, you know. Uh, and, and again, I mean, they, they probably have all this cattle because they just took all the, the, the cities of Bashan, which were full of. I mean, even the possessions they have were a gift given to them by God recently. And he's like, leave all that stuff here. Go fight and come back. 
Um, and then he commands Joshua. That's, that's important, the command for Joshua here. Uh, he commands Joshua to be strong and courageous and to remember what happened to Og and Sion and to lead the nation. Lead the nation and do not fear. At the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to say it one more time. He calls Joshua to him. This is right before Moses dies. And he says, be in front of all of Israel. And he tells Joshua, this is like a transfer of power from, of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. He says, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And again, it's a wonderful Beginning and ending for Joshua, after Moses dies, at the beginning of Joshua, right before they cross the Jordan, it, it, uh, God tells Joshua, it says, uh, after Moses died, uh, the servant of the Lord, the, the Lord spoke to Joshua, and he said the same thing that he told Moses to tell Joshua. He says, be strong. This is coming directly from God. Be strong and courageous. You shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. That would be an encouraging thing before you go into battle. God says, you will. You know, I would want to hear that. But again, remember the promises he's given to us. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful. So he's warning him. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or the left. Again, we have the same reminder from the Lord. Don't stray. Don't go to the right or the left. So you will have success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. That's where the power comes from. The power to take this land comes from their submission and obedience to every word that God has given to them through Moses. The power that they have to, to, to succeed here is through submission and obedience to God in everything that he says. That's the strength. And so he says, have, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Like I said, we're not in Joshua's shoes. We're not taking the land of Israel. We're not any of that stuff. But those promises are the same things the Lord always reminds us of. Meditate on his word day and night. Be careful to do everything that he's commanded us. Submit to whatever he says. Don't lean on your own understanding, but let's trust in the Lord and all that he says. And, and, and he will make your path straight. Be strong and courageous. Finally, you got the final plea of Moses to God at the very end of this chapter. And so in Deuteronomy 3, 23 to 29, it concludes with Moses basically being like, please let me go in. And he's like, no, Joshua's going to lead him in. But again, God is compassionate. We'll talk about it in a second. He says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, oh Lord God, you have begun to show your, service, your greatness and your strong hand. Now uh, imagine, put yourself in Moses' place. For 40 years, he's been wandering in the desert with all these, this rebellious generation. Before that, leading them out of Egypt. All these promises. I mean, God chose him all the way back from the burning bush and, and, then, and then, you know, leaving Egypt. Just think of his whole life and all he's endured, all that he's trusted. Moses was faithful in all of his house. Uh, he was the most humble man on earth. He's an example of faithfulness over and over and over. And now he's at the very end, like days away from seeing the promises fulfilled. And he doesn't get to go in. So, I mean, if you were in your shoes, you'd be like, please, you know, I mean, can't you understand? I would, I mean, and, and, but God's like, no, even this, you've got to try. Moses will see the land one day in, in a new body with new eyes, and he will be there with Christ, but not yet. He says, so I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, oh, Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness, your strong hand, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? 
Let me, I pray, this is him pleading, begging, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. But then he says, but go up to the top of Pisgah, lift up your eyes to the west, the north, the south, the east, and see it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go across at the head of this people, and he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. And so we remained in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. Like I said, you can look at this and it can seem like God is not gracious, God is not merciful, God is unkind. But you know that's not true because that's not the character of God. You've got to read it in light of all the things that we know, both about God's character and his love for Moses. I just threw up a couple of, uh, uh, well, that's actually the, when, when Moses disobeyed. I didn't, I didn't write the scriptures up there. But if you look back in scripture, again, you see over and over Moses was faithful. Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him to do. 26 times in the Pentateuch you see him say that. And that's not exhaustive. I didn't do an exhaustive study on all the times Moses obeyed, but 26 times he says, and Moses did all that the Lord commanded him to do. Moses was a very faithful man. Moses was called a friend of God. He would speak to Moses face to face as a friend speaks to someone else. So again, remember this in the context of the whole. God loves Moses. Moses is born again, if you want to say it that way. He belongs to God. He's a man of faith. He's in Hebrews 11. We know he's in heaven, and we know God loves him very, very, very much. It just wasn't God's will for him to take Israel into the land. And so Moses has to trust the Lord even with that. It's not a lack of love or compassion. It's just you're not the one, Moses. It's going to be Joshua. And so, again, you can sympathize with his desire and you can sympathize with his plea. But God says no. And, and, and there is a reason why. You know? and, and it comes back down to that Moses was unfaithful and there were consequences to that. It says, and this is Numbers 20. This is the, the, the context in Numbers that, when God said to Moses, you won't go in, but he says, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, uh, because you have not believed, I'm sorry, the, the, the story is God told, there the waters are Meribah, there in Kadesh Barnea, God tells Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out. And Moses, in his anger, goes to the Israelites and says, you rebellious people, do I need to bring rock, water out of this rock again? And he strikes the rock. It seems simple, but God says to him, you didn't trust me. He says, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sights of the sons of Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now again, it may seem to me and you like a big consequence, but it's part of God's plan. It doesn't mean that Moses didn't love the Lord. It doesn't mean that Moses didn't belong to him. It doesn't mean that Moses wasn't a friend of his. It doesn't mean that Moses didn't obey him almost all the time. He just, this is what happened, you know? And again, it's just a reminder of us, to us, you can be born again, love the Lord, but we can make a mistake that has consequences that we got to live with in this life, and that's fine. That's just part of our walk here. It doesn't mean there's not a lack of love. It doesn't mean that that just proves that we're not born again. People can make big mistakes, and people can, you know, I mean, I, look at Peter. Peter did the same thing that Judas did, except for by God's wonderful grace, God brought Peter back. Peter repented. Peter was one of his, and Judas went and hung himself. Does that make sense? So, again, just remember that. Christians can sin big, but God always restores them. But it doesn't mean there's not consequences in our lives. And, and you and me, many of us in here could tell you the consequences we've had to walk through. And it doesn't mean, in fact, for a Christian, the consequences only draw you nearer and nearer to him. Because you see over and over, every time you're humbled by the reminder of that consequence, it's what Shane said in there, I don't deserve to be here. And God is so good for letting me be here. So all that being said, 
Peter, Craigie says in his commentary, just when the climax was drawing near, he would be unable to see the Lord's fulfillment of the ancient promise. It was a promise to which he had devoted his whole life and thought he would not see its fulfillment, or the thought that he would not see its fulfillment was too much for him to accept without question. I just think it's a good insight. There may be things you plead for to the Lord, and he just says no. And you still trust him. And that has nothing to do with a lack of love, a lack of mercy, a lack of grace. It's just no, and that's okay. And you'll walk through that, and, and he takes care of us. But anyway, and I just threw this at, there at the end. So the Lord does refuse. The Lord tells him Joshua is going to be the one to take him in. But in his grace, he tells him, go up on Pisgah before you die. And this is the last thing Moses did before he died. He got to go up. He saw all the land. And then he died, and God buried him. No one knows where the body of Moses went. I don't know. To me, that's a pretty cool ending. But he did go in. What do you mean? Oh, the, the, the stuff on the east? The Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, yeah. yeah. There you go. That's right. He gets to show up with Christ later. So, and he'll go in again. Yeah. And he'll be there forever. But Deuteronomy, this is how it ends, 327. Go up to the top of Pisgah, lift up your eyes. We've already read it. West, north, southeast. You can see it with your eyes, but you're not going to cross over. I just think it's cool that someone's put a sign up there that helps you to kind of see some of the place names and where they would be. But um, just, just uh, and we'll end on this. This is a little tidbit that is kind of neat, but doesn't really matter. He said, from, from Nebo to the edge of the Dead Sea down there to the, the, the south on the left, uh, to the River Jordan, where the River Jordan hits the Dead Sea is about 9.5 miles. He would have been able to see that just fine. Uh, the distance from Nebo to Jericho, which is where they're going to cross over and going to take Jericho, is 19 miles, so he would have been able to see that just fine. Uh, the distance from Nebo to Jerusalem is about 31 miles. Now, again, I've never been there. Maybe some of you guys have stood in this place, but they say that there's mountains there. You wouldn't be able to visibly see that over the horizon because there'd be a mountain range. So, but still, I mean, it was there. Uh, and, then, and then he says, uh, you know, to, to see, actually, we'll talk about that at the very end um, in Genesis 34, because he says the Lord showed him all the land. And then he actually gives place names from Gilead to Dan, uh, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. Again, these are, they weren't the lands of Ephraim and Manasseh and all that at that time. This is just Canaanite territory, but he's, he's showing him all the land. And if you know where these lands are, they're way beyond the sight of vision from Nebo. Um, and he says... Um, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean, which, again, is 62 miles away and beyond visibility. And so some people think that the Lord literally gave him a tour, you know what I mean, and, and allowed him to see it somehow, whether that's just spiritually see it or, or, or allow, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. That's one of those speculative things that in the end doesn't matter. But the thing is, is the Lord did allow him to see all the land, and he even gave him place names, including the Mediterranean Sea, which is way beyond visibility from here and Again, I just think, man, that's the kindness of the Lord and the graciousness of God. And then Moses died. But that's in chapter 4. We'll talk about that when we get there. But that's the last part of chapter 3. And, and then we got one more, one more lesson from the first exposition of Moses. And then we start in the second one. So next week, chapter 4, is some really good stuff. And, uh, yeah, but that's kind of the, the, the history of it all. Um, we'll visit Sinai next week and talk about that. But that's it for this week. So... Let me pray, and if you have any questions, you can, you can come up here and ask me. <laughs> All right.